What's going on, everybody, and welcome in to this edition of B-Shafe Daily. Brendan Schaefer here with you in the evening hours of Sunday, July 9th, 2023. As tonight, we're talking about a Cardinals win from this afternoon on the south side of Chicago, but we're going to begin the show tonight with a little MLB draft talk. I considered maybe pushing the results of the first round of the MLB draft. The Cardinals had just the one pick tonight, but it was a big one and a good one, and I considered waiting until maybe Monday night to start talking about it, considering that we've got now four consecutive Cardinals off days coming up. Maybe save myself a little trouble by uh, holding back some content for tomorrow, but I feel like this is what a lot of people want to be hearing about right now, and they don't want to wait 24 hours to get into it, so we're not going to. We're going to get into it right off the top of the show, and then we'll begin to kind of dissect what we saw today with the Cardinals and a resurgent performance by Steven Matz in his return to the starting rotation. He looked really good, and uh, the Cardinals, despite some just terrible fundamentals, if we can be completely frank about what we saw today in uh, Chicago, the Cardinals, despite those issues, were able to get a win in the game and therefore in the series, taking two of three from the Chicago White Sox over the weekend. Going into the All-Star break on a positive note, on a day that the Reds actually lost as well. So the Cardinals gaining a game in those NL Central standings. Still a long way to go in that regard, but we can talk about the positives for what they were. And we'll talk as well about the negatives for what they were. As Again, seriously, if you missed the game, the fundamentals were problematic and it's emblematic of what we've seen from this Cardinals team too often this season for a team and a franchise that has historically prided itself upon being very good at the fundamentals. Good in the margins, the little things. We just haven't seen enough of that this year, and we'll try to get into a little bit of a conversation about the reasoning behind that, perhaps, and see what we can diagnose. I know it's a topic we've talked about before, but it is still one that is ongoing for this team, and I, I think there are folks out there that want to just place all the blame on Ollie Marmel. I see a lot of comments of, well, if Mike Schilt were still the manager, these things wouldn't be happening. And I think there's a little bit of a mix of of truth and narrative that we can kind of discuss as we go along. But like I said, I want to start with the Cardinals draft as they picked number 21 overall tonight. And I think they got a really nice college outfielder, Chase Davis, out of the University of Arizona. So we'll, th- we'll talk about what we think of that pick, what Chase had to say, some of the uh, the, the nuggets from his Zoom that he did with local media earlier on Sunday evening. And then we'll get into the Cardinals 4-3 win in extra innings from Sunday afternoon at Guaranteed Rate Field. Appreciate everybody tuning in to the show. Make sure you are subscribed to the Brendan Schaefer St. Louis Cardinals writer YouTube channel, which if you're listening now on YouTube, it's real easy. Click the button and be on board for Cardinals content the rest of the season and into what should be a pivotal offseason as well for the St. Louis Cardinals. We roll this content this channel year round and so would love to have you on board if you are in fact a Cardinals fan or interested in Cardinals content if you're not currently listening on YouTube type in youtube.com slash at bshafer12 to your URL bar and you can subscribe to the channel that way thank you guys so much for being here on Spotify follow on Spotify or Apple Podcasts to get the audio only version of the show this of course is audio as well but available on YouTube in video form with at least a nice picture to look at when I don't actually have the camera on. But if you're brand new to what we do here, it's Daily Cardinals content. I think this is five or six days in a row where we have gotten back into the rhythm after the July 4th holiday doing daily episodes. And some weeks that legitimately means B-Shape Daily, seven days a week. But uh, at a minimum, we, we look to go five times a week and we'll kind of see where the off days make sense to have. But for the most part, you're getting pretty consistent Cardinals content here. And hopefully 
you enjoy it, your feedback is always welcome. Let me know in the YouTube comment section what you think of the show, but also what you think of the the content going on with the Cardinals, the Chase Davis draft selection, the win from Sunday in Chicago. Anything goes when it comes to the comments, and you can always reach out to me at bshafer12 on Twitter, direct message. I'm basically bshafer12 on every single social media platform that's worth being on. So you can find me, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, threads. I'm probably missing one or two, but at bshafer12 pretty much anywhere you're going to want to find me. So let's go ahead, though, and get into the content of the show today by talking at first about the Cardinals draft that they had on Sunday night, at least the first round of the draft, and the, there was a supplemental in the second round, but the Cardinals only had the one pick at number 21 overall Sunday because they gave up their second round pick in signing Wilson Contreras in the offseason. So the pick of Chase Davis at number 21 was the only move the Cardinals made on Sunday night, but I think it was a good one. In, initial consensus seems to be in favor of the pick when you consider a lot of the praise that Chase Davis was getting as one of the best hitters in the draft. If you listen to what was being said on MLB Network uh, after the selection, it seemed like the panel was a little bit surprised or was at least kind of wondering aloud, well, why is Chase Davis falling to 21 overall to the Cardinals when we have all these really good things to say about his upside as a hitter? And one of the guys on the panel, I forget even who it was, but basically said, well, this draft is heavy with a lot of college bats and inevitably somebody had to fall. But it seemed like, I mean, even coming into the draft Sunday night, I, a lot of Cardinals fans were aware of the name Chase Davis and were talking about the possibility that he could end up falling to the Cardinals. And it just feels so reminiscent, even though it's a college bat versus a high school one, feels very reminiscent of the Jordan Walker draft in 2020 where as the draft unfolds, everybody goes, oh, you know who would be great to fall to the Cardinals at whatever they were, 18, 20, I don't remember exactly. But man, that Jordan Walker, this kid out of uh, Georgia, high school bat, looks like a real a real dude. And, it, and it's like, well, why does he end up falling to the Cardinals uh, later in the first round? With him, there were some maybe concerns from other teams about signability because he was committed to go to Duke to play uh, c- college baseball and the Cardinals had no such concerns where I think they were pretty confident that they'd be able to get him to sign. And I remember that first Zoom with Jordan Walker that was kind of the elephant in the room, and he immediately said, you know, we, we think we're going to be able to get this done. And it seemed like even though it wasn't a surefire thing, the Cardinals were confident and, and he was confident that it was going to happen. And so the Cardinals ended up getting maybe the steal of the draft in that 2020 class. And here we have Chase Davis. Now, again, college versus high school so the signability stuff wasn't maybe the same but the agents and the underbelly of all of this gets really involved to where they know better than we do publicly what ends up happening and and who's going to sign above slot and who's willing to sign below slot and all of these sorts of things but the bottom line is I feel like Chase Davis ends up going to the Cardinals at 21 was a guy that you could have pegged if they were going to go bat in college bat in particular that Chase Davis maybe would have been the name at the very top of the board of the people that you thought maybe would be available in that area. If they wanted to go college pitcher, there were options there. I, I believe the kid Waldrip out of Florida, uh, very raw talent that the college ERA was like over four, but just a strikeout machine needs to maybe hone in on some things. Maybe it would have been a project type of arm. And, and I think a lot of Cardinals fans thought he would have been interesting because we see the need at the major league level, right? We know the Cardinals right now need pitching and starting pitching in particular. And so it can be very easy to look at this night in particular as a way to expedite some of those needs and and fill some of those needs. 
But in reality, when you're in the first round of the MLB draft, you can't necessarily be thinking even hardly at all about what's the current need of our team at the major league level because a lot of these guys that you're drafting, depending on if it's a high school kid or a college kid, will change the timeline. But generally, regardless, it's going to be two, three, four years down the road before you necessarily see the impact of the guys who hear their names called on draft night. And so best player available is absolutely the way to go. And I do feel like the Cardinals may have accomplished that. MLB Pipeline had Chase Davis ranked number 22 overall in their pre-draft rankings. The Cardinals picking at number 21 end up getting the Arizona outfielder. Like I said, I think he was a guy that folks had targeted coming into the draft, and he ends up falling to where the Cardinals are able to scoop him up. 21 years old, listed at six foot one, 216 pounds. What kind of player did the Cardinals just pick up here? Well, he is a slugger. I think that's the, the profile that he brings. Maybe some concern about contact. And when you hear that, you might go, oh boy, if there's contact concerns at the amateur level, is he going to stick as a guy who can make contact enough and hit enough to be able to take advantage of the great power that he potentially possesses? That always seems to be the the worry when you talk about projecting players from the collegiate ranks of the high school. Normally, you wouldn't hear about concerns with a guy's contact if he's being drafted highly out of high school. But college bats in particular, if, if contact is something that you're talking about and his contact, his hit tool on the uh, MLB draft grades, the scouting grades, ranked out as a 45 on the 80-point scale, which is not like overwhelmingly great. That was kind of the low mark of all of his scouting grades when you look at his fielding and his arm and all those sorts of things. Power was a 55, which maybe doesn't seem like anything too overwhelming if we're labeling him as the slugger. But I don't know. I kind of think that when you look at the progression that he made in college, especially from year two to year three this past year in the Pac-12 at Arizona, I think maybe they undersold him a little bit in those scouting grades. And it again, you can't just look at statistics to go, oh, he's this kind of player or that because all these guys have great numbers in college. That's kind of the nature of the beast. That's why they are being selected to advance their career beyond that level. But when you look at the progression, I think it's particularly important for Chase Davis to see from his first real year as a starter, as a regular player in 2022, 290 plate appearances, hit 289 with a 414 on base and a 583 slug for a 997 OPS, which is good. But when you think about projecting a guy as a an MLB player, potentially, some underlying concerns there. I think like a 22% strikeout rate. He struck out 66 times that year, walked 48 times. But the, the 66 Ks, and the 289 average don't necessarily point to going to be a huge contact-oriented guy. Had 18 home runs, though, had 13 doubles, and, and certainly uh, slugged enough to, to get on the radar and, and have a really nice debut season. It, his, his initial season in college, which was 2021, he didn't really play. Talked about tonight on the Zoom with local media, uh, was asked by either Rob Raines or Brian Walton, I can't recall, about the hurdle of not being drafted in the 2020 draft when it was just the five rounds and COVID was going on and all those things out of high school was not selected. And he didn't really seem too phased by that and talking about it just said he's wasn't ready really necessarily to be the player that he can be now and, and was able to grow a lot during his time at Arizona. So doesn't seem to be any worse for the wear with the fact that he was not lauded as much out of high school to be drafted in those five rounds. And I do think the progression that he showed, at least statistically, if you look at the numbers, kind of backs that up with what he was able to do 
from, again, freshman year or, or first year, which, whichever the case was there in 2021, didn't really play a ton and didn't have anything to talk about in terms of numbers. Next year, 2022, played a good amount and and kind of burst onto the radar. This past season, though, this past spring, as I guess would have been a junior at Arizona, 2023, you saw a jump in basically everything. Batting average from 289 to 362, on base from 414 to 489, and the slug took a precipitous leap, 583 up all the way to 742. That's a slugging percentage of 742. For an OPS of 1231, so just cartoon numbers, MLB the show numbers, which is relevant, and I'll mention why in a little bit. But I think the most important jump forward that he made, 18 to 21 home runs, 54 to 74 RBIs, uh, everything went up except for the one very notable thing from that initial starting season where you had the concerns about the, the contact, the strikeout rate. That went down from about 22.8% to 14.8% according to these numbers that I'm just reading off of the uh, the CBS Sports markup on Chase Davis. R.J. Anderson, I believe, is the writer for CBS Sports that wrote the blurbs on their website, but I thought some interesting nuggets came from that, so I was going to read it right here on B-Shape Daily. He says of the CBS Sports crew, we didn't rank Davis among our top players in the spring on account of his woeful in-zone contact rate. You have to be able to hit strikes to make it in the pros. That's Anderson writing here and says he clearly recognized that flaw in his game and worked to level up. He succeeded greatly improving his in-zone contact rate and reducing his overall K rate from 228 to 14.8%, as we mentioned. The rest of Davis's game required no tinkering. He has good strength, stemming from a swing that has and will continue to earn him comparisons to Carlos Gonzalez. As we'll talk about here in a minute as well, there's more interesting information that came out about that. For the left-handed outfielder, left-handed uh, throwing and swinging outfielder, whose swing uh, really does resemble Carlos Gonzalez, the longtime uh, Rockies outfielder, who seemed like every offseason or trade deadline, we thought he might ever become a Cardinal and didn't ultimately happen, but keep that name in mind. But he also says, this is RJ again, a firm command over the strike zone. He's also athletic enough to profile as an above-average defender in right field. And I think that's interesting. Uh, was listed on his baseball reference page as left and center field. But I really do think uh, right field could, could be a nice fit for at least the way his bat profiles. You know, maybe not a huge batting average guy, but if he can advance enough to where basically the gains that he made from his second season at Arizona to the third one, where he cut down on the K rate, was able to make contact on strikes at a much higher rate, and is able to kind of shed that label of being a, a concerning contact guy that the type of guy that earned him only a 45 grade out of 80 for the hit tool, if that can prove to be maybe a, an underestimation of, of what he has become, because maybe they're holding on a little bit to what he was and say, well, we we saw it for a year, but how much can we really count on those, those strides being legit and being uh, repeatable? Maybe that's part of the reason for the lower scouting grade. But if that ends up being the case, I mean, if he could be a 240, 250 hitter, but show the plate discipline, the plate awareness to have – uh, to get his walks, and he walked more times than he struck out this past season uh, in the Pac-12 at Arizona, striking out 40 times, which was 26 fewer than the previous season in uh, 12 fewer plate appearances. But but that's certainly a precipitous drop-off in terms of his strikeouts to uh, strike out 26 fewer times and basically the same number of plate appearances. So that's definitely noteworthy in the gains that he made. But if he's able to kind of be that guy and, and continue to to draw walks at a solid rate, 
and just be the the power hitter that he is shown to be. 17 doubles, two triples, and 21 home runs this past season for an OPS, or pardon me, for a slugging percentage that looks like a lot of the OPSs on the Cardinals this year. His slugging was 742. So he's got raw power. He's got athleticism, potentially to, to be a solid corner outfielder defensively. Uh, all of his scouting grades in terms of his defense and, and fielding and throwing and things of that nature, 55 to 60, so rates uh, pretty favorably in terms of those things. Actually, rates better on the scouting grades defensively, uh, if you look at it that way, than than offensively. But I think could be a nice, well-rounded player. And the, the, the player comp to Carlos Gonzalez doesn't feel too crazy if he's able to, again, elevate and, and succeed at each of the professional levels. None of this is a guarantee. None of this is a given. Uh, it, it's difficult in baseball to go from hyped draft prospect in the first round to being able to grind your way through each of those levels professionally and then ultimately make it to the big leagues and have that same profile and not be tripped up by any of the, the landmines that are there throughout the, the various levels of the minors. So it's not a guarantee, but it's fun to do these player comps, and so we do them. And it's really interesting to bring up the Carlos Gonzalez comp in particular because while the swing does look a lot like him and you could make a case that a lot of uh, the elements of their games are similar, very interesting tonight to hear Chase Davis actually say that he and Carlos Gonzalez, the longtime right fielder or outfielder for the, the Rockies, have a personal relationship with one another. He said that Carlos Gonzalez actually slid into his DMs on Instagram a couple of years ago when, I guess this would have been last year when... Uh, Davis was a sophomore at Arizona. He talked about they played a game against Washington and went to bed or whatever. Woke up to having seen that Cargo followed him on Instagram, liked one of his posts, and had sent him an introductory direct message. And basically the two exchanged phone numbers and have spoken quite a bit and uh, developed a relationship to where Davis said, you know, it's not all just necessarily mechanical stuff that he gives me, but the joke when he first uh, began interacting with Carlos Gonzalez was that Cargo said people were telling him that Cargo had stolen this kid Chase Davis's swing as the you know obviously Carlos Gonzalez came long before Chase Davis but uh was just a a way to be complimentary of the similarities and I I guess it just boiled down from Carlos Gonzalez being told by enough people like yeah you got to see this kid he's he looks exactly like you and so Cargo just decided to strike up a relationship which how cool is that I mean Chase talked about waking up seeing the, the notifications on Instagram and having to wake up his roommate and going, this is legitimately Carlos Gonzalez chatting me up and, and hitting me up and, and looking to strike up a relationship. Uh, and then he's been a mentor for him. Said, again, not just like the mechanical stuff that you'd think he can help a guy with, but just from a veteran major leaguer that did it at such a high level for that period of time, like Carlos Gonzalez, uh, Chase Davis said the mindset, the ability for uh, Cargo to, to give him little tidbits and advice on just the mindset of how to how to be, how to carry yourself has been uh, instrumental for him as well. So that was one of the interesting nuggets that came from the Zoom that took place Sunday night with new Cardinals draftee Chase Davis. The other one was the fact that uh, Chase Davis is from Elk Grove, California, which is the same town that Dylan Carlson hails from, but said he actually went to the rival high school. However, Dylan was at a facility in town over the this past winter hitting and working out and Carlson comes up to Chase Davis and taps him on the shoulder and introduces himself and then they exchange phone numbers and so they've got at least a little bit of a, a pre-existing knowledge of one another 
and now potentially going to be teammates. I'm hoping that ends up being the case, guys. Like, I think it would be absolutely crummy to have this this little connection be built, and then within the next three weeks, Dylan Carlson gets traded. But as we talk about, the Cardinals are, are definitely maybe in the market for some starting pitching, and Dylan is a controllable outfielder, and so maybe that's appealing to one of the teams that has pitching to give. Uh, I'm not personally in favor of it. You guys know I like Dylan Carlson and think very much of uh, his game and the value that he can bring to the Cardinals, but I, I'm also a realist that can understand sort of the way the roster works. So maybe it's a case where, where Chase Davis, you know, ends up kind of taking a spot occupied by Dylan Carlson a few years down the road uh, because Dylan may, may get turned into pitching. We'll see. I, I'm not predicting anything necessarily on that front, but if you've listened to B-Shape Daily and the content on this YouTube channel, we've talked a lot about kind of the what the Cardinals are facing here coming up at this trade deadline and some of the decisions that they'll have to make. But some interesting stuff there from Chase Davis. Uh, my impressions of him, just kind of watching him talk on the on the Zoom tonight, strikes me as an earnest kid, like, gets it. You know, you can just kind of tell when a guy speaks, uh, if, if they get it, if they, if they, you know, the way they carry themselves, the way they handle a situation like that, seems like he, like he gets it, hard worker, and has a lot of personality. You saw some of the personality shine through. Uh, one of my favorite moments was hearing him describe the Bush Stadium as a beautiful stadium, he said. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. And then he said, I played there a bunch of times on uh, Road to the Show, <laughs> on MLB The Show, uh, Road to the Show and Diamond Dynasty and things like that. And instantly I thought, okay, one of us. We love to see that. Uh, I actually don't have the show this year. And him saying that made me go, that's just, uh, to be able to relate to these young players now, man, I got I to gotta stay with it and be still playing the show. But you could tell, like, the way that he was talking about MLB The Show, that he's, like, pretty into it, that that he and his buddies probably do leagues and things like that. And was we're talking about the uh, – he mentioned the Diamond Dynasty. And so I think he's, like, a, a seam head when it comes to MLB The Show. But it was hilarious to hear, go, oh, yeah, I've played there a bunch of times on, on Road to the Show, and it's a beautiful ballpark. And I think – I just think that's so funny because, like, he's 21 years old, only, eight, you know, eight years younger than me. I guess I say only. Um, maybe that's a big number, but it's really interesting just to think about a lot of the kids that are coming out of, whether it's high school, college right now, video games are a big part of what they enjoy. And so a lot of these young guys, they love baseball. And so it would stand to reason that they'd be pretty involved in these baseball video games. But I thought that was very cool. And I just thought he was a kid that had a lot of personality that even in just a short zoom, you can hear him answering questions and see uh, a lot of that. So I really think Cardinals fans are going to like him. I think he's got some pizzazz to him, an edge to him, and it's just a matter of seeing if those uh, those improvements in the contact arena can improve, or I should say improve, but just be maintained as he rises levels. In terms of where he'll start out, I kind of wonder if they would jumpstart him all the way to maybe high A Peoria, uh, just because he is 21 years old and he's got you know multiple seasons of collegiate experience, and so it's not just like a kid coming out of high school where you're going to send him to rookie ball and, and really wait to level him up. They could do that with him just to kind of get his feet wet for a couple of weeks before deciding where to, where he would really go to to play out the rest of the season and and how quickly they want to get him started and all of these things. Um, but I, I just think reps and opportunities the rest of this summer would be great as quick as they can get him going. So I'll be intrigued to kind of see what and how soon we uh, we end up seeing the path for Chase Davis, I, I would like to see high, high A personally. Uh, Randy Flores, I believe, would have spoken at Bush Stadium tonight, Cardinal scouting director, uh, but I was not down there at the ballpark. And so if they've already told some reporters kind of what the plan is for that, 
The reason I'm talking about it in more speculative terms is because I don't know it and I wasn't there. But high A, I think, would be a great target. But if it ends up being low A or whatever, I think you'll see him by the end of the season probably to high A. And I don't think it's impossible that he could be a guy who rises quickly. But it's all going to be based on how he handles kind of that first taste of professional ball. Said he wasn't worried at all about going from aluminum bat to wood bat and said he almost kind of welcomed it. Played some at the Cape Cod League, uh, which gave him an opportunity to use wood bats in the the Collegiate Summer League, things of that nature. But I think it's just going to depend on the numbers. If he goes in wherever they land him, he's he's not making contact and is striking out a lot. It'll take him maybe a little bit longer to adjust. But if he meets the challenge like a Jordan Walker did, basically every level they sent him to once he first got an opportunity in 2021 – then you might see him rise relatively quickly to where you could see a path to double A by the end of the year, or at least at the beginning of next year, it's conceivable that he could be to double A. And then it's just performance based from there. So for folks asking like, how soon could we see Chase Davis in the big leagues? I would say pump the brakes a little bit. You, you know, these things can take time to develop. However, if you want to look at an optimistic path of it, and if he kind of passes every test with flying colors, you could see maybe double A early next season and, and even a promotion to triple A at some point in 2024 to where I think by 2025, it's legitimately on the horizon. He would have to really exceed all expectations to get there sooner than that. But we've seen guys do that before. So it's just a little bit of a unique territory because the Cardinals aren't often drafting college bats this highly in the draft. Typically they go college arms or high school bats, which even the high school bat thing wasn't uh, much of a trend until 2020 with the Jordan Walker and Mason Wynn guys. Uh, but that's why it's maybe a little bit difficult to comp exactly how the Cardinals would handle it. Like they've had collegiate bats before, like guys like Lars Newtbar and Tommy Edmond, but those were sixth round, eighth round picks. I think I reversed those. Eighth for Newt, sixth for Tommy, if I'm not mistaken. But like when it's a first round guy, how quickly do they end up developing and advancing? I think you have every reason to, as long as he's showing decently, get him to double A as quick as you can and kind of let him feel his way through that and what that looks like. Because once you get to double A, then you really are just a step away from the big leagues because you could go directly from double A to the bigs. It's happened before. Not that I predict it will happen here or that the Cardinals have any necessarily uh, inclination to do it with this player. It's uh, again, not trying to put the the cart before the horse, but I, I just think as quick as he can get to double A and show that he can handle himself there, that would be the pathway for him and any other player to be able to make that leap to MLB sooner rather than later. So Chase Davis, number 21 overall, I think a nice pick for the Cardinals. I think an example, once again, of of Randy Flores just kind of letting the draft board come to him. When it's come to the the bats that he has recently selected, definitely have found some good ones. We're kind of waiting to see what the development of the pitchers looks like with guys like Michael McGreevy and Gordon Graceffo. And you can go back to Tink Hentz kind of making waves now from that 2020 class. Uh, Zach Thompson, of course. We'll see what ends up happening with some of those guys in their their career trajectories. But so far, so good when it comes to the development of the bats. We'll see what they do with a highly drafted, highly touted collegiate bat here in Chase Davis. So comment below here on YouTube what you think of the Cardinals picking Arizona outfielder Chase Davis with their first pick in the MLB draft, number 21 overall. How do you feel about it? What are your expectations for him? And are you excited about the pick? Let me know below on YouTube in the comments section, and make sure you subscribe to the Brendan Schaefer St. Louis Cardinals writer channel. Okay, let's go ahead and talk about the game from Sunday as the Cardinals got the 4-3 win in 10 innings out in Chicago on the south side. Steven Matz was back in the rotation for the first time in a while today. 
And he looked darn good, guys. Like, he looked like a different version of what we had seen, and he looks like the kind of guy that would get $44 million on the open market as the Cardinals paid him a couple of years ago over the course of four years. Five and a third innings, just two hits allowed. No earned runs. Did allow an unearned run because that was the theme of the day for the Cardinals is this was a 4-3 final, and the Cardinals didn't give up an earned run in the entire game. All three runs for Chicago were unearned as we'll talk about the fundamental issues for the Cardinals here in a minute. But Steven Matz looked really sharp. Nine strikeouts, two in this game with no walks. Like, this is hands down as good as we've ever seen him. Had a really great defensive play as well, where a comebacker knocked off his glove, and he basically, as he was running toward first to cover the bag, the ricochet went to Goldie. He was covering the bag and put the glove back on as he was running to catch the ball and and beat the runner to the bag. was a really nice play by Steven Matz. So he was doing a little bit of everything today. Only 75 pitches, but through 57 strikes in those 75 pitches, he was pounding the strike zone. He was changing eye levels, using his changeup and uh, mixing in the curveball as well, which the curve looked sharper. The changeup was great and was putting it to the bottom or below the strike zone. And the, the, the fastball was really good, too, because of the way he was locating it. If you go back and look at a bunch of the strikeouts that he had, a lot of them were because he was putting that fastball up over the top of the strike zone rather than, like, letter high where guys could sit on it and pound it. He was elevating, going up, changing eye levels, doing all of those things and doing them with success, drawing a lot of swing and miss on the fastball, too. So really, really good stuff from Steven Matz. It's only one game to this point, and so I don't think we can be over the moon and just pretend that this is who he is now. But if he is, if he's going to take this kind of step forward and and maintain it, that is excellent news for not only the rest of this season for the Cardinals, who are in dire need of help in the rotation, which, by the way, I think we can completely pause the Steven Matz conversation so that I can offer a mea culpa on some of the things that I said last night when it pertains to Jordan Montgomery, when we really didn't necessarily know what was going on with Montgomery yet, and I kind of sort of took you guys on the ride with the negative viewpoint based on uh, the tweet that we saw from Jeff Jones where he said, well, he's going to meet with George Paletta, the Cardinals team doctor, about the imaging that he underwent with the hamstring. And that, I thought, was concerning because I felt like there would be maybe more of a substantive update if it weren't that big of a deal than, well, he's going to have to meet with the team doctor before we know more, which is kind of what we got from Saturday. Thought maybe they'd say, oh, it's not that bad, and and we'll just kind of determine next steps and be careful with it. That's not what they said. All we got was, well, he's going to meet with the team doctor. Well, Sunday morning, Jim Hayes of the Valley Sports Midwest crew tweeted out Jordan Montgomery on his right hamstring. Quote, it feels really good. I don't think it's going to be a problem. Jim says he'll get it checked out by the team doctor in STL tonight, which would be Sunday night. So hearing from the horse's mouth himself that maybe not that big of a deal just kind of takes us back to the possibility that it was totally precautionary. So, yeah, everything I said yesterday about Jordan Montgomery, yeah, maybe I was completely off base on that, which would be wonderful news. See, I was doing this for your benefit, Cardinals fans. I was running my stupid mouth saying, well, speculatively, I think it could be this, and they've completely lost their trade value on him. Maybe that does not end up being true. And uh, then Jeff Jones, I, I did see today, put out a couple of teams. I think he cited the Blue Jays and Phillies as two teams that could be looking and a guy like Montgomery, provided he's healthy, uh, to maybe add at the trade deadline to those rotations. So I think there are going to be suitors for sure if Jordan Montgomery ends up coming through this hamstring thing relatively unscathed. Would be great news for the Cardinals if that's the case. And hey, if all I got to do 
is be negative and offer some baseless speculation that ends up uh, being overly chicken little in nature, and then that makes Jordan Montgomery be just fine. Well, I'm sure Cardinals fans have no problem with that, but if I put too much of a scare into you or made you too depressed yesterday, apologies. I tried to articulate that I didn't really know, but was trying to read some tea leaves. And yeah, we get into that territory sometimes when we do too much of the reading tea leaves without actually knowing. But when I do those things, I try to make sure everybody's aware, like, hey, I don't actually know, but if you want to know my opinion, here's what I think. And that's kind of what I was going with yesterday, but I think I made it a little bit too ominous to say, yeah, it sounds like Jordan Montgomery is going to be out for a few weeks, which means basically cratered the, the trade value. May not be the case, so we'll see if we get any uh, further updates in the coming days on that. Probably won't be till Friday uh, unless it gets reported. Like, the Cardinals have no reason during the off days and the All-Star break to announce anything formally, unless it's bad. But, uh, yeah, we'll end up seeing what happens with Jordan Montgomery. But ideally, maybe was able to dodge the, uh, the, the bullet there on what could have been just absolutely disastrous timing if it was a severe injury that was going to cause him issues. Not out of the woods yet. Like I said, I don't want to go too far in the other direction and then get y'all's hopes up and be wrong about that. But I would say the tea leaves, if we're still reading them, look better than they did yesterday. So anyway, Stephen Matz, though, regardless of what they do with Montgomery, they're going to need starters uh, because ideally they're trading Montgomery, getting some nice pieces to be able to reload for 2024. And if they're doing that, certainly there will be spots available in the rotation. Steven Matz is a guy that would be a clear candidate to fill one of those spots on a permanent basis if he looks anything like he did today. The Cardinals, though, really tried their damnedest to not win this game in the wonderful Steven Matz start that they got. Let's talk about some of the defensive issues that we saw today from the Cardinals or just generally bad fundamentals. And it's going to be a little damning when a lot of that comes from one guy in particular. And it happens to be the same guy that they paid a whole lot of money to to replace the guy that was arguably the best fundamental player of the Cardinals over the past two decades, at least in terms of no one to do the little things. Maybe Adair Molina didn't always run out the ground ball to first base, or, or did he rarely do that? But Wilson Contreras came on to be his replacement, and there are a lot of, I guess, non-Yachty qualities about Wilson at this point that it's kind of difficult to ignore, especially on a team that's playing poorly. Like we talk about the Cardinals in the standings. Yeah, they gained a game today. The Reds are 50-41. and 41. They're 11 and a half games up on the Cardinals instead of uh, 12 and a half. The Cardinals at 38 and 52. But the Cardinals have had a bad half of baseball this season. Just pitiful. And you can trace back, a, unfortunately, a pretty good deal of it, I think, to, well, bad pitching. But part of the things that have made the pitchers look worse, I think, are just the lack of fundamentals that is just a very unbecoming trait of a St. Louis Cardinals team. We remember when Mike Matheny was fired that fundamental baseball had eroded and we didn't really see the level of crispness to the game that we had come to expect from Cardinals teams. And they bring Mike Schilt to the helm. He's got his little black book of George Kisselisms that is his Bible, basically. And he turns the Cardinals around and helps to usher in a, another era of good defensive quality fundamental baseball. Do the little things right, all that good stuff. Mike Schilt gets fired at the end of 2021. Cardinals had a great season last year in all of these regards, and I would argue continued to improve in some of those areas and, and picked up on some of the things like the, the base running advantages that you can take and the running through the second base bag that everybody was so impressed by that, that the Cardinals implemented and did so well and executed. They were doing all of those things last year under Ollie Marmel, by the way, and that's the thing I wanted to kind of 
put at the forefront here. When you want to identify why are the Cardinals so bad at fundamentals, because at this point, I just don't think you can get around the fact that they are bad. It's a half of a season of baseball, and they've performed really badly in this area. They don't have to be that team necessarily. I don't want to condemn them as this thing that certainly is a label that nobody would necessarily like to be given. But for me, it boils down to if the Cardinals of 2023 would reject the label that they are a bad fundamental baseball team, they should prove that they're not one by being a better one on the field. And I tweeted that out today and said, you are what your performance over the course of time says you are. And this season is more than halfway through. So at this point, I feel pretty comfortable saying at least the Cardinals are a bad fundamental baseball team in so much as what they've shown in 2023. And they've shown it over 90 games that too consistently they're inconsistent. Too often they're not doing the little things right. You have errors being made. You have plays not made. And then you have base running mistakes that we can sugarcoat it and, and frame it in a nice way to say, oh, it's a it's an error of aggression sometimes. But a lot of times it's not. And even if it is, it, not every base running mistake can just be excused because you're being aggressive. That's not, I think that's just, that's too nice of a way to put it when you don't want to be critical of something. A lot of the mistakes the Cardinals make are just mistakes, and they are avoidable in many cases. But today, it's like I want to rip the whole defense to say fundamental baseball is eroded. But the reason I bring up the fact that Ollie Marmol managed last year a team that was good in fundamentals, and then I want to dissect what's wrong with the fundamentals of this year's team. Again, I'm not trying to pin it all on Wilson Contreras because there are things going on besides that. Like Paul Goldschmidt made an error today that then ultimately led to the first run of the, I think it was the first run for the White Sox. And then Goldsmith, by the way, redeemed himself in the 10th inning with the play that he made on the, the bunt they tried to put on there in the 10th inning. I think it was basically a safety squeeze, but Goldsmith does so well with it that there's no time for anything to happen other than he fields it and makes the play to first base. Elvis Andrews had walked to make it first and third, Runner advances, he advances from first to second, but the guy from third had nowhere to go on the Zach Remillard bunt that I believe that, I mean, they were trying to score a run there. You don't, with one out, try to just advance the guy to second and third. Uh, They're trying to, to bring that run home, and Goldschmidt put a stop to it, looked back the runner, and then made the play at first base for the second out. So he really redeemed himself defensively and still a gold glove caliber first baseman to my eye. Had a, a bad game offensively, did Paul Goldschmidt, and, uh, you know, until that point, arguably a, a rough game defensively, too. And you could make the case that after his last strikeout of the day, and he had three of them, went 0 for 4, but did reach base once via walk. But his last at-bat of the day was him just chopping at a, a, a pitch well below the zone, striking out for the third time. And I thought, boy, he looks like a guy ready for the all-star break. And yet, even after that happens, he makes a big defensive play that allows the Cardinals uh, to, to be in still position to win this game, which they ultimately did 4-3. to three. So nice to see from Goldie, and I'm not going to rip him apart for the defensive play. He makes an error early on. In that same inning, the, the, the base runner that reaches because of the error, Wilson Gutierrez advanced him by two with a, a pass ball or a wild pitch. I don't know what they ultimately called, but it's a ball that Contreras has got to catch. And then throwing makes an error in order to advance the runner to third. I mean, that's... Basically, I don't know if he got two errors on that. Cardinals get three errors in the game in total. And to me, you again, you can trace back a lot of it to 
Contreras. Goalie had the one. Wilson had one. And then they do end up giving the third to Nolan Gorman. It was Yeah, it was just a, a pass ball, I believe, because Wilson ended up with two of them in the game. So a pass ball, and then Contreras gets the, the throwing error that leads to the first run for the White Sox. But Gorman ends up as well with the fielding error that was costly for sure in the eighth inning, which gave the White Sox a 3-2 to two lead. Bases were loaded. It was a tough chopper his direction, but he beats the runner from second to the third base bag. Like he physically, I don't think he'd stepped on the bag because he knew he didn't have the ball, but he would have beat the runner to the bag. All he has to do is field the chopper, take the, the proper number of steps, step on the bag. He would have been able to get out of that jam. And uh, instead, the Cardinals end up giving up a run in the eighth to uh, to give up what was a, a tied score at the time. White Sox score a run in the seventh, a run in the eighth in order to take the lead from the Cardinals. They had it 2-1. to one. Then it becomes a 3-2 to two game, and they have to have the Alec Burleson random RBI that takes place in the ninth inning. It really does seem this year that Burleson is the master of the weird RBI. It was like a chopper that arguably could have been a double play, but they botch it, can get the out at second. Tying run scores from third, so the Cardinals tie it, and then they win it in the 10th. Uh, Paul DeYoung, by the way, gets credit for the double plating the Manford man to get the Cardinals the go-ahead run that they needed. Two for four with an RBI today for DeYoung. 736, the OPS watch on Paulie D. But Gorman playing third base today with Arenado as the DH ends up making that error. Contreras had two pass balls, a throwing error, and a base running gaffe on a fly ball to right by Burleson. That was just, I don't have any idea what Wilson Contreras was looking at. I think it was in the seventh inning. Can't remember the exact inning. It was later on in the game. And instead of like going back to first base to tag on a clear pop fly, it was like right center. So the center fielder and the right fielder were kind of converging. I have no idea what Wilson Contreras saw. It wasn't an eye doctor appointment that he had this week. Remember, it was the dentist that kept him out for the first two games of the series. And so I don't know, maybe that's next. Whatever it was, he didn't see it well. He was like holding halfway as though this was like going to be a ball up against the wall or something. Into the And then he starts running. He takes off. Instead of going back to first, he runs and rounds second. And I mean, it wasn't even. So that's just a complete brain fart gaffe. I I don't know if he gave an explanation to media after the game or what, what happened with it. But it's just like completely bonkers stuff that adds on to a game where he had two pass balls and had a throwing error. Thank God he can hit <laughs> because he hits the two-run home run in the fourth inning that gives the Cardinals the lead in half their runs until the, the events of the ninth and tenth inning. That's basically what it's going to boil down to for the Cardinals in making this Wilson Contreras thing work because he goes two for two today, scores a run, reaches via walk, had the big home run, golfed it just inside the foul pole, fair pole down the left field line for a two-run shot in the fourth. His average is up to 240, and he's OPSing 753. He's got an OPS closer to 853, though, if he's going to continue to play this poorly in terms of fundamentals of the game elsewhere. And it's such a weird dynamic with Contreras because nobody doubts how much he wants to be great and how much he wants to win, but he's got to realize at a certain point that he's got to get his head on straight with some of these, these fundamental things. A lot of the stuff, and I don't know exactly the pass balls, how they keep happening, but sometimes it's because he's down on one knee, and I know that's like the cool thing to do to try to get the low strike, get the umpires to call it for you, but I got to be honest with you, I haven't seen any umpire in MLB all year call a low strike. I see him calling the high strike, but Cardinals pitching at least is not getting that low strike anyway, so I think get off your knee and, and catch. I get it that that's something that 
I'm not going to win that battle against the Cardinals in the kind of the way that they choose to go about it. And they're not the only team doing it. They don't mind the one knee thing. Like it's almost a strategy element for them to try and score some more strikes for their pitching staff. I don't think it's working. And I think the risk of it is, is no good either. Um, but in general, just Wilson Contreras has to catch the ball more. Like it seems like such a simple thing. I'm not saying this is connected to the throwing under the bus that happened when he was taken out from the catching position for a while. I, I think they're two separate issues. I think it's game calling versus, uh, which which is a, a nuanced thing, which is difficult. Maybe that whole pitch com thing was happening where he was calling pitches that those guys didn't throw, and and that would have been a you know definitely something they had to get on top of, and I think they did. But I think there's a separate issue of just defensively as a ball player, Contreras has got to be on top of things, and base running has got to be a little bit better on top of things. I think he's a very fun personality, a great guy, a, a great piece to have in the clubhouse. I think he's got to be on top of some of these things in order to continue to have everybody view him that way, right? Like, nobody doubts the passion. Nobody doubts the exuberance and the, the positive force that he can be when things are going well. But when things aren't going well and, and it comes off as like a lack of attention to detail, that's not what you want. And you especially don't want it for a team that has these fundamental issues up and down that roster wide, they're having trouble this year. And so you don't want those things to rub off on others. You got to be the veteran leader. So I do think it's incumbent upon Wilson Contreras as good as he has been at the plate recently. And he has been, I mean, to, to raise his OPS to 753 from where it had been suggests a, a great path forward for Wilson Contreras offensively. He's been scorching hot the last seven games hitting 545 with a 655 OBP, and he's slugging 1,000 over the past seven games. Past 15 games, still very good. 396 average, on bases near 500, and he's slugging 660 over that span. And you can even take it back to the last month, basically. The last 30 games over the course of 99 ABs, 273 average, 385 on base, 505 slug. That's the guy Wilson Contreras can be, and that's the reason the Cardinals signed him. You know, five home runs in the last 30 games. He can hit 20 to 25 home runs. He can hit for a 260, 270 average. He can OBP 360, and he can slug 490 and be an absolute force for this lineup. And with the way he's playing defensively and in the base running, I think he's going to have to be in order to to justify not only the signing, but, but his status as like the veteran dude that the Cardinals need him to be to be successful. So offensively, I want to give him props. He's been fantastic. And I, I think he's going to continue to, to to rise to where the numbers at the end of the year are going to be there for Wilson Contreras. He's got to take the step forward when it comes to the little things. And again, not every little thing that goes wrong is a guy's fault, but I think when enough of them have piled up the way that they sort of have against Contreras this year, it's incumbent upon him to try and make sure those things don't continue to pile up and don't become a problem. Because in the game on Sunday, it certainly was a problem. Cardinals were able to overcome it, though, thanks to his own offensive contributions with the two-run home run, but also thanks to some really good pitching. So that's kind of my view of the fundamental things. Like, I look at it, and, and again, I talked about Gorman. I talked about Goldie, who should should be just the best of their their players fundamentally, and he is. Arenado was not in the field today, but we've seen some lapses from him, even though he's a perennial gold glover. He's won it every year he's played in the league. I don't know if he'll win it this year, but he's been fantastic his entire career. You also have guys playing out of position sometimes, but that's not always a negative. Like Tommy Edmond is not the reason fundamentals are bad on this team. Um, but we've seen him when when playing out of position or, or changing positions so often 
like when they took him from short to second, he's, he made a couple of game-changing errors, right? Uh, fundamentals. Another element of fundamentals is walking the leadoff batter when you come out of relief. Jordan Hicks has been their best reliever recently, but he did a lot of that earlier on in the season and has done it some recently as well. So even the good players and the ones that you feel like are more reliable than others, they have had fundamental lapses too. Does that make Ali Marmel a manager who cannot get a handle on the fundamentals of his team? No, I don't believe that is the case. I believe that Ali Marmel is tearing his hair out and probably banging his head against the wall in his office when these guys are making these mistakes because he cannot physically go out there and do it for him. I don't agree that Ali Marmel has set out an environment where players feel it's okay to not be good fundamentally, but you have to manage players and egos and personalities differently, and it's not maybe just balls to the wall, be angry about it, and demand excellence and have everybody respond to that. I think that he's got some of that in him. I think Mike Schilt had way even more of that in him, and I don't know that everybody always responded well to that to foster the the clubhouse culture that you desire. I think Schilt did a nice job, but he was a very uh, hard-nosed guy and, and demanded excellence, and those are good characteristics, but I think there's a tack to it. And I think Ollie Marmel is, is trying to maybe be the best of both worlds in that regard. But he's also got personnel issues that he is dealing with that I Mike Schilt, frankly, did not. Wilson Contreras is maybe among the chief offenders of lapses in fundamentals and in the little things that are on this roster this year. He wasn't on Mike Schilt's team. It would have been fascinating to see how Mike Schilt might have handled that. Ollie Marmel's got to have his own way of handling it. And again, just because you handle it right doesn't automatically mean the player goes out the next day and fixes the issue. That's a nice thought. It's not reality. And I think Cardinals fans want it to be reality, but I don't think it is. I don't think that's the way the world works. We talked about MLB The Show earlier in the the podcast. On a video game, that might be how it works. You might click a button and say, I'm going to up my managerial charisma points and now my players are going to listen to me and they're going to not make errors anymore. Human nature comes into it and it doesn't work that way. And I think we're conditioned a lot of times as baseball fans to kind of forget the human element of it a little bit. And so I don't think it's as simple as Ollie Marmel's the manager now. They're bad at fundamentals now. They weren't bad when Mike Schilt was the manager. And so it's Ollie Marmel's fault. I I get why people are going to say that. I agree that Ollie Marmel has to find a way to improve it. But I also think there's only going to be a certain extent to which he is able to have that impact. The personnel on the field are going to have to demand it of themselves as well and make the changes where changes need to be made. Maybe not the answer Cardinals fans like to hear because they want to be mad about something, and you should be mad. You should be mad that these fundamentals suck because they have. But I, I also think it's more nuanced in the the way you direct that and to the people you direct it toward because I don't think it's as simple as Ollie Marmel go fix it. Yes, Ollie Marmel go fix it, but also I think we'd be realistic about the challenges that that he is, I, I was going to say could face, but the challenges he is facing in this area because I think it's something that's been ongoing. But I tell you, it's something that Ollie Marmel is, is going home at night and not he doesn't not think about it. It is killing this guy <laughs> to have to, like he, he, it's his name on the on the cover of this book, right? Like it's his name, and he hates it just as much as Cardinals fans hate it. Is my perception, but he's also a realist of I can't physically be the guy to go do it, and I can get mad and yell and throw things, and that might work sometimes. But there are other times where you you still got to be a leader and, and figure out ways other than just completely blowing up and losing your shit, which I think 
I don't know. He's probably done the time or two. I would if I were the manager of this team. But I just, people will say this is me defending Ollie. I think it's me trying to offer nuance into what's actually going on more so than let's just identify the thing to be mad about and pick the easiest guy to be mad about it for. Be mad, but I think I think there's more nuance to it if we'll, if you'll be honest with yourself about the way this Cardinal season is going. And yeah, we'll, guys like Wilson Contreras got to get better. Guys like Nolan Gorman, he's made strides at second base defensively, but you, you move him over to third base for a day, makes an error. He wasn't a plus third baseman necessarily. He was fine, and then he hasn't played the position much recently. Um, those things are going to happen. They're not as strong of a defensive roster as they were in 2021. They just aren't. So I think that's part of it as well. Demand excellence, yes, but realize the personnel is what it is, and the Cardinals have made some level of sacrifice, some by force, some by choice, with the way that they are constructed defensively that are, I think, contributing to some of these issues. But like the base running stuff and and fundamentals of of knowing what to do offensively, making the right play. Jose Fermin had a nice bunt later in this game. He showed bunt once, which kind of hung Paul Young out to dry on a stolen base attempt. But later on in the game, was able to execute the bunt after the Paul DeYoung double. And so, uh, you know, those little things, those types of things that I think the Cardinals, uh, we, we see the timely hitting, we see moving the runner over. Those are things you want to see more of offensively. Uh, but fundamentals, it's base running, it's defense, it's, it's timely hitting offensively and knowing situational hitting. Cardinals have not done enough of it so far this year. And if they do better at it in the second half, who knows, they could live up to their talent potential. But I think that bakes into what we've talked about which is they're a, a pretty good roster, I think, especially offensively. We'll see what the pitching ends up becoming. Uh, it's certainly not been good enough so far this year. But they are performing as a team as less than the sum of their parts rather than you hear about teams that are greater than the sum of their parts, like maybe the Marlins under Skip Schumacher this year. The Cardinals are not anything close to greater than the sum of their parts. And if you add up their parts, uh, you, you get at least a 500 record. And they don't have that. So they're much lesser than the sum of their parts at this point. And until they fix a lot of these fundamental things, I think that's going to remain the case. So before we get out of here on today's B-Shape Daily, which, by the way, comment. Let me know on YouTube what you think of all these fundamental issues the Cardinals are having. Who you blame for them? Is it a collective culpability? I, th- I think it's more yes to that, but I'm curious what Cardinals fans think. Even if your answer is, nope, it's Ollie Marmel and he's trash, let me know on YouTube in the comments section uh, because I, I do believe reasonable minds can disagree, and I like hearing from Cardinals Nation. So subscribe to my channel real quick, and then you can make any kind of comment you want. You you can do so without subbing, but it helps me out if you like my content. I do sit here an hour every damn night talking to you. So let me know what you think. Subscribe to the channel, and uh, we'll keep rolling here. But I do want to say before we get out of here, I had intended to spend some time kind of talking about Nolan Gorman tonight and the struggles that he's having uh, offensively more so than defensively. We mentioned his error but Nolan Gorman offensively has really taken a precipitous decline. We expected him to be in Seattle for this All-Star weekend, right? That was my bold prediction for the season. Doesn't end up happening. And I guess I called it All-Star weekend. All-Star week. But Nolan Gorman has struggled, right? As of uh, the last few weeks, last month plus. What do we think about that? I- I'm going to get into more Nolan Gorman stuff, I think, on tomorrow's show. Because, again, no Cardinals games this week. So we can kind of get into some long-range topics. And I just I want to explore Nolan Gorman a little bit because I do believe that when you look at that group of position players that the Cardinals could be trading for pitchers, it's interesting to evaluate Nolan Gorman's role in that potentially and how much the recent slump might be affecting what the perception of his value and his potential could be from other teams. 
I think there's a really nuanced conversation to have there. Again, I don't know anything more than the next guy necessarily about what the Cardinals are about to try and do in terms of trades. You would have thought coming into the year or at least at the beginning of the year when he was showing very well that he would never be a guy they'd want to trade. But I think it's interesting because the Cardinals are going to have to find that combination of guy who's valuable and guy they're willing to trade and meet somewhere in the middle on that to be able to get the pitching that they need. So instead, because we're near an hour already on this episode, going to maybe push the Gorman stuff back to tomorrow. We'll try to make a mental note for myself. And if I forget, listeners on Tuesday, let me know that I didn't talk about it. But I should be able to get to that on Tuesday. But want to wrap up today by talking about JoJo Romero because he finally got a decision at the major league level after I think it was like 48 appearances, never had a win, never had a loss, never had a save. And today he ends up getting the decision because after Steven Matz came Dakota Hudson, who gave up an unearned run, a couple of hits, but no walks, so that's nice. Two strikeouts for Hudson as well. ERA down to 2.70, but again, did give him an unearned run. Henesis Cabrera came in to kind of save the day there for Hudson in the seventh inning. Chris Stratton pitched an inning, gave up the unearned run. Wasn't really his fault, as we talked about. Errors have uh, had won the day for the White Sox until JoJo Romero comes in. JoJo Romero pitching the ninth inning, bottom of the ninth in a tie game after the Cardinals were able to knot it back up in the top of the ninth. Pitches a scoreless ninth. I think it was one, two, three. Basically breezed right through it. And then in the 10th, he walks one guy, but gets out of that jam despite beginning the inning with a runner on second base. I believe that Jordan Hicks must have been unavailable today. Otherwise, you would not have seen Romero in a save in what would have been a save situation had they brought a reliever in. But because he was pitching the inning prior and goes two scoreless, it's a win, a major league win for JoJo Romero which I think he had at one point, but they the, the official scorer changed it and took it away. And so he got the laundry cart experience again today where they dump a bunch of crud on you in the, the clubhouse and throw you in the shower and your full uniform. It's a whole thing for a guy getting his first MLB win. Congrats to JoJo Romero. Uh, ERA down to 3.65 in the limited time that we have seen him this season. But if he can end up being a weapon from the left side for the Cardinals, they could. I mean, they could use a weapon from any side of the bullpen when it comes to just guys that you can trust in those late situations. He's got the mustache flowing two innings, zero runs, zero hits allowed, just one walk and three strikeouts. I will say like, I was a little surprised to see it wasn't Jordan Hicks as well, but maybe wasn't available. Gallego certainly wasn't available today after the frequency that he's thrown recently, but Romero ends up with a a really nice effort and the Cardinals don't win that game without him. And so that's where we talk about, like, you got to have a full bullpen. We saw Hudson, Cabrera, Stratton, Romero. We saw four relievers. Two of the top relievers weren't available. Even those guys, like Gallegos, has coughed up his fair share of games, too, so those guys aren't guarantees even when they are available. It, it takes a village in the bullpen, and the Cardinals just haven't had it. Romero looked different today. If he could continue that, that would be a huge boon to the bullpen and the success of this Cardinals pitching staff. So we'll see what he's able to do. But congrats to JoJo, at the very least, for getting a dang decision. And the fact that it was a big W to take the Cardinals into the All-Star break is exciting as well. That's going to do it, though, for this edition of the program. I appreciate you guys so much for listening. Please do follow on Spotify. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts if you're willing to help me out in that way. Rate and review on those apps so uh, other people can find us and think we're a good show as well before giving us a chance. And subscribe on YouTube. The other thing I'll mention is Patreon. Patreon.com slash bshafer12 is the place to visit if you want to take your support of this channel to the next level. Get those comments in, and we'll see you guys tomorrow night right here on B-Shape Daily. Peace.